Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Givers and Takers. Amen. Well, if you are familiar with Greek mythology, then you are familiar with the character Narcissus. Narcissus was the handsome young hunter who was the son of the river god Cephasus. Now, as the legend goes, Narcissus one day, being a hunter, was taking a stroll through the woods, and as he was walking through the woods, a beautiful mountain nymph saw him and fell in love with him. A a nymph in Greek mythology is a spirit that would dwell in mountains and in rivers. And so the nymph's name was Echo, And she saw the young, handsome hunter, Narcissus, walking through the woods, and she fell in love with him. And so what did she do? She appeared to him, and she approached him, and she tried to embrace him. I don't know if you guys remember this when you were studying Greek mythology. And what did um, Narcissus do? He stepped away. He spurned her advances. He rejected her. And Echo's heart was broken. In fact, she was so hurt, so deeply hurt, by the rejection of this this, um, young, handsome hunter, that she fell into a a deep depression, became very lonely, and she, as a spirit, slowly pined away until all that was left of Echo was just her voice, her Echo in the wilderness. Well, the Greek goddess Nemesis found out about how Narcissus spurned Echo, and she decided that we're going to punish Narcissus. And so she led him to a pool of water. And as Narcissus was walking by the pool of water, he looked at his own reflection and he fell madly in love with himself. Narcissus looked and he became enamored with his own face. So much so that he just continued to stare and to look and to admire what he was seeing. And he was unable to pull himself away even to eat. And so days turned to weeks and to months, and eventually, Narcissus lost his strength, and tragically, he died of starvation, laying by the pool of water. Narcissus was self-absorbed, and it's from his name that we get the term narcissism. What is narcissism? I'll define it for you. It's simply excessive interest in oneself and one's physical appearance It's extreme selfishness. Do you know anybody who fits that description? Don't point at your husband or your wife. (laughs) Not why we're here today. Now, Now, the truth is that a narcissist doesn't know he or she is a narcissist. They're totally blind to it. But even though they'll never, never admit it, the three most important people in the life of a narcissist are me, myself, and I. The way you can tell a narcissist is because all of their decisions, or at least the vast majority of their decisions, are based on what's in it for me. And then they use people and they exploit people for their own ends. In other words, narcissists are in relationships not to give, but to take. And when they get into a relationship with you, Even though they may use flattery, and even though they may make you feel good, and even though they may use words that build you up, their hidden motive is to use you, manipulate you, exploit you, and take something from you. And what's sad is that often the narcissist doesn't even know what he or she is doing. Now, our culture encourages narcissism. Everywhere you look, it's bad in America. I love my country. I think our country is the best country on the face of the earth. But you know what? And we should clap, right? We should thank God for the grace in the United States of America. But this whole thing of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's a slippery slope because that can turn into narcissism like that, where you think it's all about you. It's all about your dreams and your hopes and what you want. And so whether it's internet ads or magazine articles or TV commercials or self-help books, they all tell us, put yourself first before anybody else. 
And many Americans, they're consumed with power, personal power, personal pleasure, personal entertainment, personal wealth, and they just can't stop gazing at themselves in the reflecting pool. Americans, many Americans, are addicted to themselves. Question, aren't you glad the Son of God came to show us a different way of life? Totally different way of life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gives us a different way to live. What a difference between the example of our culture and the example that Christ has given us. Let's look at our main verse for the day, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he did whatever it took to become more wealthy, and he used people and he exploited people so that he could become more powerful and and have a higher position and so that he could be entertained and he could have his pleasure. Is, Is that what it says? That's what our culture teaches. Let's try it again, and we're all going to say it together, right, on the count of three. One, two, three. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What a difference. You see, in eternity past, Christ was a king, more wealthy than you could ever imagine. But later, as he looked down on fallen humanity, he saw that we needed help. And so he left his throne in heaven, and he came down to the earth. He became one of us. We celebrate every Christmas. It's called the miracle of the incarnation. God wrapped himself in human flesh. So why did he come? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Jesus could have been like so many other rulers down through the ages who so desired power and pleasure and wealth that they would do anything to get that. He could have come with the attitude of bow, kneel, heal. It's all about me. That's not how he came. The reason we love Jesus so much is because he came to love us and to serve us and to teach us and to eventually give his life for us. Christ became poor so you and I could become rich. Jesus was truly altruistic. You say, what does that mean? I'll define it for you. Altruism is the practice of selfless concern for the well-being of others. By the way, just look at that definition real quick and ask yourself in your heart, how are you doing? How are you doing? You see, again, we all have a little bit of narcissism in us, but we don't see it. So maybe if we see the definition for altruism, we can ask, how does my life compare to that definition? Do I really, am I really selfless? Do I really have a concern for the well-being of others? When I'm in a relationship with somebody else, whether it's my husband or my wife or my child or my mom and dad or my aunt or uncle or my friend or my neighbor or my coworker, am I in that relationship to take or am I in that relationship to give something, to help somebody? You see, every single day, And I don't always live up to this, but every single day I pray, God, make me a servant and a blessing to everybody that I come into contact with today. Help my motives to be pure before you. And I fail all the time because there's narcissism in me. But I ask God, Lord, help me by your spirit. As I'm in this relationship, I'm talking to this person. Help me to to, to know how can I bless, help, and love this person. Altruism is just the opposite of narcissism. And again, it's the reason we love Jesus so much. The reason we're so drawn to him is because he was a giver. And once again, you look at all the other, most of the other kings and rulers through history, and you see people who were self-centered, manipulative, cruel, and Christ comes on the scene. He's selfless 
and compassionate and kind. Now, the word Christian means like Christ. How many Christians are in the room? Let me just see your hand if you're a Christian. I'm hoping every hand goes up, right? Or if not, well, please talk to me after the service. We call ourselves Christians. That means we're supposed to be like Christ. That means we're supposed to follow in his footsteps. But the church has become so me-centered. I'm telling you, when I look at the church in America, I'm speaking in very general terms here, though a lot of times I see it on TV specifically. But when I look at the church in America, generally speaking, I see so much narcissism. It's everywhere. It's infiltrated the church like a disease. And people who have this me attitude, listen to this, they come to church not for what they can give, they come to church for what they can get. That's their attitude. I want to be blessed. That's why I'm coming. And you know their attitude because when they come in the parking lot, their attitude is, don't tell me where to park, I'll park where I want to park. Little man with the orange jersey and the, and the flashlight thing. And they come into the sanctuary, don't tell me where to sit. They actually get ticked off right in the middle of worship while the Holy Spirit is here and, and going around and hugging people and people are experiencing a fresh baptism with the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ. They're ticked off because the usher wants them to come sit over here instead of sitting somewhere else. Narcissism. Let's call it like it is. It's narcissism. And they come and sit down. Why is it so hot in here? Why is it so cold in here? I don't like that music. I want the kind of music that I grew up with. Why is that guy preaching so long? Just tell me how I can be a success in life. I don't need all this Bible knowledge. I don't need all this verse by verse stuff. Just tell me how I can be a success, how I can be blessed. Keep it short because I got things to do. And whatever you do, don't ever talk about giving because I'm not here to give, I'm here to get. That's the attitude of the church in America. And it's gotta stop. Ladies and gentlemen, we gotta be something different here at Calvary. We have to be something different. In other words, we have to be givers and not takers. And so the only way that's gonna happen, the only way to go from narcissism to altruism is to have a divine encounter with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the only way. And then his spirit comes inside. And the spirit begins to change us from the inside out. It's called sanctification. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process. But as we daily surrender to Christ, can everybody say daily surrender to Christ, please? Such a key. Every morning when you have your devotions, you authentically, because God sees right in your heart. He knows if you're faking them out or not. You authentically say, Lord, I'm surrendering again to you today. And as you daily surrender to Christ, as I do that, his spirit makes us less and less narcissistic and more and more altruistic. And here's what happens. After a while, we, we find ourselves actually desiring to do two things. We find ourselves actually desiring to serve others. And we find ourselves actually desiring to give to others. Now, Pastor Jacob recently talked about the importance of serving. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the importance of giving. So to do that, we're going to look at two passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. I hope you're looking at Malachi chapter 3 right now. We're going to start in verse 6. We are in the, the 5th century B.C. And God's people, Israel, have fallen away from the Lord. Their hearts are cold as ice. And so God, because he loves his people, sent a prophet, a prophet named Malachi, to try to encourage his people to return to him. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. God, speaking through his prophet, says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. 
Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances. and You have not kept them. Return to me. Return to me, he says. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now stop right there. Again, Israel had fallen away from the, from the Lord and their hearts had become cold as ice. But because God loves his people, how many of you guys understand God loves you, right? Even when you're falling away, he loves you. He doesn't want to consume you, O sons of Jacob. It's not his heart. It's not what he wants to do. So because of his love for his people in the 5th century B.C., he sends Malachi to give them words that would help them to return to him. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. It's, it's, like, it's like the Lord through Malachi. If you could just imagine this picture, there's Israel, there's a, all these Jewish men and women, teenagers, boys and girls, they're falling away from the Lord, yet they still have a little bit of, of fire in their hearts, a little ember, a dying ember. And it's like the Lord through Malachi is blowing on that ember, fanning it, trying to get it to come back to life. And the way he does that, it says, return to me and I will return to you. Now look at the end of verse 7. Look specifically how they needed to return to him. He says, well, first they ask at the end of verse 7, but you said, in what way shall we return? So Israel's asking God a question. Okay, you said we're falling away. How shall we return to you, Lord? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And God answers, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you've got to understand that 5th century B.C., it's an agrarian society. And in that agrarian society, in obedience to the law of Moses, the people of God tithed. The word tithe in the Hebrew means a tenth part or 10%. And because it was an agrarian culture, they tithed of their grain, their fruit, their wine, their oil, and the firstborn of their herds and flocks. When a, a Jewish man or woman tithed to the Lord, they were saying at least two things. They were saying, Lord, you are in control of all things. You're the owner of all things. And number two, you are our provider. Okay, and so as a Jew would look out at his wheat field, so to speak, and he would, he would see the harvest, the plentiful harvest, what he would say in prayer to the Lord is, Lord, thank you. I didn't make that happen. By the way, you got a job this morning? You didn't make that happen in and of yourself. It's the Lord's blessing. We got to look at everything that happens because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in heaven. And so they would look out the wheat field, Lord, thank you. Man, you've provided again. You've blessed again. And I, listen to this, I am not going to selfishly keep all of that for myself. I am, in obedience to your word, going to bring a tenth part, 10%, to give to you. Now, they brought it to the temple storehouse. And of the 12 tribes of Israel, God chose the tribe of Levi as his ministers, as his priests, and he told them, I want you guys to do my work of ministry there in the temple. Now, I want you to look at what God said about the Levites. Please look at Numbers 18.21. God says, behold, I have given the children of Levi all the what? All the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. It was a tabernacle back then. It eventually uh, under Solomon, uh, became the temple. And so God chose to support his ministers and his ministry through the tithes of his people, but because in the 5th century B.C., the people of God stopped tithing, God's ministers were suffering, and God's ministry was also suffering. And so look at what the Lord now says in verse 
10, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, remember what, what is he doing? He's standing over the, the, the children of Israel. He's blowing on the little ember in their heart. He's telling them, I want you to return to me and I will return to you. How? Verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try or test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not even be room to receive it. Verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. So he's not just blessing them with material and immaterial blessings. He's doing something else here. He's rebuking the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And so what is God saying essentially in this text? He's saying, Israel, I don't want you to be takers. I want you to be givers. But they didn't do that. And maybe their excuse was we can't afford to tithe. And we hear the same excuses today. Shouldn't we wait until the economy gets stronger before we start to tithe? Shouldn't we wait until we get a raise at work? Shouldn't, I had one guy tell me one time years ago, shouldn't I wait till I pay off all my credit card debt before I start to tithe? And I want to say to them, did you not see the promise in verse 10? Look again at the promise. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me now in this if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing there won't be room enough to receive it. It's the only place in the Bible where God says put me to the test. It's like God is standing over you and I today and he's saying I dare you. I double dare you. I dare you to trust me enough to take the top 10% and give it to my storehouse for my ministers and my ministry. I dare you to do that. But what do we say? We can't afford it. What does that mean? It's a lack. Here's the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen. It's a lack of faith. I heard about one lady who claims that she got saved when she started tithing. I kind of laughed within, but... Here's, here, here, here's the reasoning of this lady. It's not that she had to work her way to heaven. It's not that she had to give something in order to earn heaven at all. She understood that salvation is by faith alone um, in Christ alone. She understood that. But it's when she trusted God's promise that he was going to take care of her in this life that God did something in her heart. And so we say, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We're going to trust him for our whole eternity, but we can't trust him for this life? Hey, if you can't take God at his word in this life that he's really going to take care of you, do you really trust him to take you to heaven someday? Abraham was justified by faith. What did he do? He believed the promises of God that his, through his seed there would be a great nation and the Messiah would come. And his, his descendants would be like the stars of heaven. And Abraham believed God, and God counted it unto him as righteousness. And so the question is, do you honestly believe God? Now, I believe there are two reasons why many people can't seem to make ends meet financially. The first reason is because we mismanage the money that God entrusts to us. We overspend we get into consumer debt. We have to pay off all this interest. Consumer debt, right? It's going into debt for, for, for stuff that is not appreciating in value. I'm not talking about buying your home. I'm talking about, you know, swiping your credit card for food and for the movies and for the clothes and for the pool or whatever. And so what we have to understand is that one of the reasons why we can't seem to make ends meet financially is because we're mismanaging, we're overspending the money that God has entrusted to us. And we want to help in that area. And so I'm going to talk about that at the end of the, of the service. But a second reason why people can't make ends meet financially is because they're not honoring God with the tithe. 
And did you know a big hunk of people in the church are not honoring God with a tithe? Look at what Randy Alcorn says up on the screen. About 40% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians give nothing. Nothing. Nada. Zip. You know why? A lot of times, not all the times, but a lot of times it's because, again, they have the attitude when I come to church, it's not about what I can give, it's about what I can get. Now, another reason why 40% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians give nothing is because they don't give God their first fruits, they give God their leftovers. And so after payday, here's what happens. Oh, we got to pay the mortgage bill and the two car payments and the boat payment and the school loans and FPL and groceries and credit cards and cable and clothes and dinner out and golfing and movies. And then if there's anything left, we might throw a few bucks into the offering bucket as it goes by. That's why that statistic is true. Because we're not putting God first, we're putting him last. The last I heard, the average evangelical gives away less than 3% of their annual income. That includes all charitable giving. Here's what happens. We, we approach life with a closed fist. And then we, we wonder, God, why am I not being blessed? Right? If we would just learn to open our hand and begin to tithe, then God would open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing, we would not be able to contain it. And then all nations would call us blessed. Did you know if every Christian tithe, there wouldn't be no need for welfare? If every Christian tithed, not only would all the needs of this local church be met, every local church would be met, and not only that, but we would be able to, able to reach out into our culture and be more of a blessing to other people. That's what would happen if we took God at his word. But no, 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 no. We don't trust God's promise. We think we got to make it happen. And we're stingy. And we're narcissistic. And we're closed-fisted. And God can't get anything into our hand when it's closed. And so the Lord says, open your hand, and then you will be able, after that, to receive. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not saying tithe so you can be rich. I'm saying that at all. I'm not the guy on TV. Now here's what I know. My wife and I have been tithing for many years. And we are witnesses the fact that God has absolutely opened the windows of heaven and poured out such a blessing. My wife and I don't know what to do with it. But here's the thing. It's immaterial and material blessings. We're not rolling the cash we don't live in some big mansion. We live in a regular home in a regular neighborhood. The car that I drive is probably 14 years old. I don't care. I don't have any car payments, praise the Lord. I don't care about that, right? But God has blessed us, and here's the thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, the necessities of life, will be added to you. I'm not talking about get rich and tithe. God may decide to do that in his sovereignty. I don't know. What I'm saying is that if you put God first, he has promised to meet all of your needs. That's the truth. At this time, please turn all the way to the New Testament. Sec, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 7. And I got to believe that the Apostle Paul was absolutely embarrassed to have to write what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's defending his apostleship. He's not receiving a dime from the church, even though he's the apostle Paul. And so he has to go into this embarrassing um, um, writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to try to explain to the church that they should be financially supporting ministers and their ministries. That's the context of what we're reading. And so look now, starting in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock, 
Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? So now he's going to the law of Moses. Pastor Mike, we're not under the law of Moses. No, it's true, we're not under the law of Moses, but we certainly can learn some principles from the law of Moses. And the Apostle Paul is demonstrating that right now in verse 9. He's going to quote from the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 25.4. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out its grain. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes, our sakes in the church, our sakes in the age of grace, our sakes for those who are not under the law of Moses? You see what he's doing here? Some people don't even read the law of Moses because they're Gentile Christians. I'm not under that. You should still read it because there's great principles you can apply to your life. That's what he does here. Verse 10, or does he say it all together for our sakes? He says, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of this hope. Then he says, concerning New Testament ministers and their ministry to the church, hey, if we have sown, in verse 11, spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And it's sad that that Paul has to write this. It's got to be embarrassing. And he didn't want to make up too big of an issue about it. So in the middle of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So he went out and got a job making tents. I don't believe that was God's will for Paul. Because he just said, If we have sown spiritual things for you, we should be reaping your material things. And so now, key verse, verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple? Now stop right there and everybody look up at me. I'm going to see how well you guys have been listening. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple? Who are the ones who ministered in the Old Testament temple? Their names were the Levites. Thank you. Praise the Lord. You're listening. So Paul's going back to the law of Moses to make a point to apply to the church. Do you not know that those who ministered the holy things eat the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar, Levites, partake of the offerings of the altar? And so he's reminding the church that under the law of Moses, the Levites were supported by the people. Their ministry was supported by the people. And now in verse 14, he's going to apply that to the church. I don't know what version you have. I have the New King James Version, and the first two words in verse 14 is even so. Somebody who doesn't have New King James Version, what's the two, first two words? Just say it out loud. Even so, what else? In the same, in the same way. Okay, that's, that's the idea in the Greek. So even so, or in the same way, verse 14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So he's going back to the law of Moses. He's taking a principle and how God's people supported God's ministers and ministry. And he's applying that now to the church in the age of grace. Now, John Piper says this, and I want to encourage you guys to get an article when you go home, Google it. Um, uh, it's called Beyond, I'm sorry, Toward the Tithe and Beyond. And so this is what he says concerning verse 14. The least Paul is saying is that those who spend their lives in the service of the word of God should be supported by the rest of the Christians. But since he draws attention to the way it was done in the Old Testament as the model, it seems likely that tithing would have been the early Christian guideline if not the mandate. So Paul, once again, takes a principle from the Old Testament. He applies it to the church. And I don't want anybody to misunderstand today. I'm not saying that we should tithe in order to get God to love us. You guys don't believe that, right? I just got to make sure as your pastor. I'm not saying tithe so God will love you more. No. I'm not saying tithe so God will, will give you more grace. No. We tithe Not to get God's love and grace. We tithe because God has already loved us and poured out his grace upon us through Jesus Christ. It's a thank you, God. Man, you've been so good to me. 
thank you. Here you go. And you know what the Lord does? He opens the windows of heaven and blesses us even more. And he says, I, he says, test me now in this. And so let me share why Christians should be tithing. And this is not a comprehensive list. But why should we tithe? Well, first of all, to give the Lord first place in our finances. So important. I don't know how you budget, but it's, it would be so honoring to God is if when you got paid, before you thought about the mortgage or FPL or going golfing or the movies or whatever, the first off the top 10% goes to the Lord and to his work. My wife and I have been doing this for years. We practice what is called storehouse tithing. That means we take at least a minimum of 10% of what we earn from the gross. Sometimes people say, should I tithe on the net or gross? And I just kind of say, oh, whatever, right? I just don't want to answer that question. We, what my wife and I do, we take 10% and we give it to the storehouse of the local church. That's the way we understand the scriptures. Then we give offerings as the Holy Spirit leads above our tithe. We've been doing that for years. God has blessed us incredibly, immaterially and materially. So we give the Lord first place in our finances. The second thing is to support his work in the local church. So when you think about this local church, we're part of the global Calvary Chapel Association of Churches, over 1,600 churches, Bible colleges everywhere. We're part of, of that. Okay, but we don't receive any funding from that. Everything that we do here at Calvary comes from our, together as a church family, our tithes and offerings that are given. And so we, we take that money and we have a board of directors that holds us accountable and they look at the budget. We have people that look at the P&L in detail to make sure we're not mismanaging God's funds. And we use that money to uh, support various missions and church plants and um, um, of, of different local organizations, but we also use it in-house, and, and by the way, also evangelistic outreach and benevolence um, needs within the body, but we also use it for ministry and programming and personnel, et cetera, et cetera. And so we should do that um, to support um, the local church, but also to support missionaries and church plants, to become more altruistic and less narcissistic. You guys understand what that means now? And so we were singing a little while ago, my heart is yours, my heart is yours, take it all, right? And I was thinking, man, what if we change the words to, my wallet is yours, my wallet is yours, take it all, right? You know why I can say that in the authority of God's word? Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So you, you can sing all you want. My heart is yours as I put $5 in the plate. My heart is yours. And God sees right through that. Your heart's not mine. Your treasure is where your heart is. If I really had your heart, I would be Lord of every area of your life, including your finances, and you wouldn't be giving me your leftovers. You'd give me your first fruits. Let's grow up, church family. Let's mature in Christ. Let's become more altruistic and less narcissistic. And then I put it last on purpose, stay in the place of blessing. Because we do not give to get. That's not our primary reason. We give to honor the Lord. And then he just blesses us. Now, we understand, and by the way, can I encourage you, those of you who are not tithing, just take a step of faith. But do it regularly. Do it all through the summer months while you're on vacation. Did you know that while you're on vacation, we still do ministry here? <laughs> but you see the giving, right? Every year it kind of dips and then comes back up in the fall. Man, what if it kind of stayed the same all through the summer? I want to encourage you to be faithful to the Lord. Test him in this. See what he does. Be faithful for at least a year before you do it for a little while and then stop and do it and stop. Just be faithful for a year. Watch what God does in your life. And then I want to encourage you also that we understand that stewardship is not just how we handle the 10%. We understand that stewardship is how we handle 100% of God's money. And the truth is, all of us, myself included, we need a little bit of help from time to time. 
And so what we've done is we've started a stewardship ministry. Pastor Lee has started it, and he has appointed Travis um, to come, come on up, Travis. You guys give a warm welcome to Travis. Inga Bretson. Front and center, brother. And so we've appointed Travis as the leader of this stewardship ministry. So I asked Travis to come and to introduce himself, tell you a little, little bit about what he does for a living. And then he's going to give you some practical steps on how we can be good stewards of everything that God has given us. And then I'm going to close out the service. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Just thinking it would have been really embarrassing if I tripped on those stairs on the way up here. Um, but as Pastor Mike said, uh, just a bit about me. Uh, my wife and I have been coming to this church for over two years. Uh, we started at the high school and then moved to Peacock and now here. And we were just so blessed um, when, when we came to this church. It took us a couple of years of searching until we found Calvary. And just being part of the life groups, everything we've done um, has just been such a great impact on us throughout our lives that, you know, naturally we look, okay, how can we serve? How can we give back to the church? And I know hundreds of you are doing the same thing. Pastor Mike talks about um, our, minister, our ministry team and volunteers that we have the best on the Treasure Coast. Um, yeah, we do. Um, so when we were looking at ways to serve, um, my background is as a financial advisor. That's what I do for a day job. Um, so I'm always dealing and thinking about financial issues. And I just has a, had a burden while I was doing that, real, thinking, you know, what is all this for? Because you work with people who, um, you know, are very wealthy and their focus is on how can I get the most money? How do I pass it on to my kids? How do I keep as much as I can? And it just, it bothered me. And my burden serving in, the, in this church was to make sure that you guys had the resources you need to keep the focus where it is. Um, so we realized that there are different stages of your financial journey, right? Some people are just beginning. You know, you're just starting out, you have a lot of debt, or you can't figure out how to spend less than you were. And there's, you know, definitely with the economic crisis, it hurt a lot of people, and we're still coming out of that. So you're trying to figure out, how do I even get on the right foot? And then we have other people who are you know, they've gotten their finances in order and they're looking for something deeper. You know, I'm starting to save some and build up a surplus. What is God calling me to do with what he's entrusted me with? I want to make sure that my focus is on heaven, not on earth. So what do I do now? And then there are others of you who are near the end. Maybe God has been blessing you abundantly and you have a lot of resources, but you're not quite sure how to give to have the most impact you can in the kingdom of God. Um, a lot of times this is with people who have real estate or small business, uh, people who are very wealthy but don't have a lot of cash sitting around. You say, how, how can I give um, what I have? I'm not really sure how to do it. So we have something for each of those stages, and, and that's what we'll talk about. Uh, the first one is Financial Peace University. And this is a life group that we've been offering for, I'm not sure, a couple of years at least. Um, and we've had people been going through that here at Calvary Chapel. And it's, this is your basic personal finance course. If you're just at the beginning and you're trying to figure out how do I get out of debt? How do I really get started with finances? You know, I know I need to save for retirement. I want to provide for my family and kids. This is the type of class that'll help you. It's a nine-week course and we'll show quickly a video of a, a couple who went through FPU back in the fall and their experience with the course. Hi, I'm Jennifer and Jermaine Mitchell. Um, we took financial peace about eight months ago. We came in not really knowing what to expect. We all figured we knew about finances. We were both college graduates. What more can they teach us? But taking the class was a huge eye-opener. We came into the class with a little over $40,000 in debt and the class has taught us step by step on how not only to overcome the debt, but also how do we get out of our mortgage to live and retire with, with no bills or no monthly incremental finance, um, expenditures. Um, this class, um, at first I was resisting because um, I read about it and heard about it and I thought it was just uh, basic things that I can actually do on my own. But um, what I realized by taking this class, I learned how to budget better. I learned how to uh, spend wisely. I learned how to invest my money. 
and I learned steps where I can, you know, I can learn to get out of um, um, uh, out of debt. So I'll definitely recommend it. And um, as a couple, um, it help us to um, communicate better, help us to come up with a comprehensive plan where we both can each hold each other accountable. So I'll definitely recommend it, and it definitely has a lot of value that um, you know, any, everyone can learn from. So I actually had the privilege of facilitating the Financial Peace University course that Jennifer and Jermaine took. So I can just add a little bit to their story. Um, you know, Jennifer said that when they started the class, they had $40,000 of debt. Um, I just want to be clear that had is past tense. They no longer have that $40,000 of debt. That was student loan and credit card debt. And in eight months, they paid it off. On top of that, they also saved up two months' worth of expenses. So if, hopefully it doesn't happen, but if they lost their jobs, had no income coming in, they'd be current on everything for two months. So they've paid off $40,000 of debt and saved up at the same time. Um, so we know this course really can impact your lives, and it gives you a step-by-step -step plan of how to do that. So this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock in the Shine Children's Building, there's going to be a free preview night for Financial Peace University. If you're interested, you want to learn more, we'll go in a lot more detail into what the course covers. And it's nine weeks after, so free preview night, and then the next nine weeks on Wednesday nights. And we really believe in this course. The curriculum, there's, there's, a lot, there's audio material, there's books, there's a lot of stuff that's packed into the curriculum. It's normally $100, that's what the church pays for it. And we believe in it so much that we give it to you guys for $60. Um, we give a 40% discount because we want to make sure that if you guys want to take this course, we want to make sure it's accessible to you. Um, so come see us at, at the Life Group table. We'll have more information on that. Uh, the second thing that we're doing, for those of you maybe, you know, we've been doing Financial Peace University for a few years. If you've already gone through that or just in general, your finances are already in order and you're looking for that next step. God has been blessing you. You're starting to get a surplus and you want to say, what do I do with this? What is God calling me personally to do in terms of giving? Everything Pastor Mike just talked about. How do we focus on heaven? And, you know, um, he referenced the verse, where our heart is, that's where our treasure is going to be. How do we lay up treasure in heaven? How do we do that? Um, that's going to be a life group called The Treasure Principle, and that's by Randy Alcorn. Um, he wrote a book, and now this is a 12-week life group on this course. And we'll be starting that next Monday, uh, not tomorrow, um, next Monday, May 4th at 7 o'clock, again in the Shine Children's Building. Um, I'm really looking forward to facilitating that. When I read the book, it totally changed the way that I viewed giving. Um, you know, sometimes it can be, um, as Pastor Mike was saying, you get into a routine, I have to pay this, 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 and let's say you're even tithing. Tithing can just be part of the bills you have to pay. Uh, but Randy really unpacks the excitement and the opportunity we have um, to give and realize that we have a really short time on this earth to invest in God's kingdom. But when we do that, when we get to eternity, um, it'll be there for us and we'll have eternal blessings and rewards in heaven. That's why we're laying out treasures in heaven um, for all of eternity. So it's, it's really exciting. I'm looking forward to doing that class. And then the next thing for those of you, um, again, you might have been blessed with a lot. Um, specifically those of you who have more complex estates or illiquid assets, whether you own a small business or you have um, you know, real estate, rental properties, and you know you want to give more, but you're not quite sure how because how do I give a, a piece of land or business? Um, there's an organization called National Christian Foundation, and they have an office in Fort Lauderdale, but we have some uh, connections with them, and we can help connect you to their organization. They specialize in doing complex gifts, and they help you strategize how to have the most kingdom impact with your gifts. Just a, a quick example is, let's say you had um, a, bit, a small business worth a million dollars, and you felt called by God to, to give that away. Um, most people would just say, okay, let me sell the business, and then you're going to pay you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in taxes, and then you give the rest away, which would, first of all, I mean, that would be awesome. You know, $700,000 after taxes would be great, but what National Christian Foundation will help you do is give the business away. So the organization you're giving to actually gets the full million dollars. You get the tax deduction on the full million dollars. You don't have to pay the taxes. So you can impact the kingdom so much more, and whoever, it's, we're not telling you have to give to this church. Um, it's, it's wherever God lays it on your heart, but they will help you strategize and plan 
how to give most effectively and, uh, and get the most impact out of what God has blessed you with. So those three things, Financial Peace University, Treasure Principle, and National Christian Foundation. Pastor Lee and I will be at the Life Group table in the cafe after the service. Um, also, we want to hear your questions and your stories. If you have God's stories, uh, we want to know, you know, individually, but also we want to see how God is working through this church and blessing you guys as you're being faithful. As we're taking what Pastor Mike teaches us on the weekend, and then we're implementing it through our lives, we want to make sure that um, everything we provide to you is helping. And we want to praise God with you when he shows up. We want to be part of that, and we want to celebrate with you. So please tell us your stories. Any questions you have, we're here to answer them. Um, it can be difficult sometimes to get advice you trust because everyone else in financial circles is trying to sell you something. And we're a church, we can't sell you anything. So we just want to give you biblically-based answers for any questions that you have. And if you're looking to uh, serve in this area as well, I'll just put that out there if you're kind of interested or you have skills. Um, we are probably looking for some facilitators in the fall for more financial life groups. Uh, please come see us after um, the service, and we'll be there again to answer any questions or give you information on the life One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.